Let me ask you to take your Bibles and open them to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I grew up with a very uh, unique uncle, a special uncle, uh, very much a part of our life. His name was Uncle Billy. And Uncle Billy was uh, small of stature. He was married to my mom's sister. Uh, Uncle Billy was a farmer. When our parents needed to do something, go somewhere, uh, that aunt, that uncle, was they were the first uh, stop. They were the first drop-off. They lived near us, and uh, all the, the cousins, uh, the kids, uh, Grew up together, and uh, Uncle Billy, even for his kids and for cousins, was a, pretty intimidating. He was small of stature, but he was just kind of gruff. He's the only person I ever knew that would go to bed at 7 p.m. And uh, we would go to the house, and you just knew when you walked in, Aunt Vaughn would say, Uncle Billy's asleep. And this farmer would go to, he'd get up at like four, but he was down early and you did not want to be in the story of the kid who woke him up. And, um, and it's something that was really unique about Uncle Billy was the way he walked. And he had a particular gait that just invited kids and cousins to imitate him. And when he was not looking and he was not around, it just kind of seemed like one cousin always would volunteer to be Uncle Billy because you just would walk like him. His foot would land, and just as soon as his foot would land on its heel, it would do this immediate twist out to a, a just a parallel, just perpendicular, and it just twist. Every time he hit, every step, his hit, and his whole his leg would twist, and his whole body would just rock, and it was dramatic. And it was the way I knew him his whole life. And, and even in mocking him or imitating him or emulating him, finally you get to this day and you're like, why, does he, why did he walk that way? And you ask somebody that question. And the story is, the true story is, is that when Uncle Billy was a teenager working on a farm, his foot got caught in some farm equipment. And his feet, his 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 feet were basically just um, braided together, his toes were, and it, it, from that time as a teenager, the rest of his life, he, um, he walked completely different. When you come to Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says, there is something that happens in your life when you meet Jesus that causes you to walk different than you ever walked before. It is a common and favorite reference of the Apostle Paul to refer to our spiritual life as a walk. Walking with Christ, walking in Christ, uh, walking in our faith. And he repeats it several times in Ephesians. He repeats it several times in, the, in different letters that he writes referring to our faith in Jesus Christ being like a walk. And he points out that when you meet Jesus, when you believe in Jesus, when you trust Jesus, you're going to walk different from that point on than you ever did before that. And here's the question today. Has your 
testimony of faith in Jesus resulted in you walking different than the world. Is there a distinct difference? Is there an indicator of a life-changing experience for you with Jesus showing up in the way you walk? The first three chapters of Ephesians talk about our calling to salvation. The last three chapters of Ephesians talks about our conduct because of that calling. The fruit of that salvation, the evidence of that salvation, the impact of that salvation is that we walk different. And it shows us that in the first three chapters, all of this doctrine and orthodoxy that we now uh, come to a point of believing will become orthopraxy that shows up in the way we are behaving. And the, and, and the Apostle Paul comes to chapter 4 and he literally says it. He says, therefore, and it's not a reference to the verse right before that verse. It's a reference to the whole first part of the book. Therefore, because God has done all of this, because you have believed, because by grace through faith you have been saved, there." For as a prisoner in Christ, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And so for the next few minutes, I want you to be, be thinking about, do I walk different? Do I walk like the rest of the world who doesn't know Jesus? Or, to, or can I say, yes, I walk different today because of Faith in Jesus Christ. Look at it. Chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Today, if you're taking notes... Um, I would call this message something like uh, walking in balance. Or uh, Here's the statement. Our spiritual walk is a balancing act. It's a balancing act. Let me show you what I mean by that. He says, I therefore, because of all of this that's been said about doctrine and salvation and what who we were, who we are, what it cost to get us there. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Why does he throw that in? Seems strange that middle of the book that he would bring up the fact that he's a prisoner for the Lord. I think it was a way of him stating again his position and authority from where he was writing. He's showing them that him himself living for Jesus Christ has had some consequences. It led him to being in prison. And he's speaking from a position that he's saying, I'm willing to pay the price. I'm willing to walk it out. I'm willing to live it out. I'm, I'm coming to you as a prisoner for the Lord. He says, I urge you to walk. That, that picture of conduct, the spirit, it's a descriptor of our spiritual life, the way we live, the, what we choose, how we relate to people. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Calling, a reference to our salvation. He says, walk in a manner worthy. The word worthy comes from a Greek word that means to balance the scales. 
to balance the scales. And he's saying, I, I'm, I'm writing to you. I want to urge you in your conduct and the way you're living in everyday life. In the manner of doing that, be worthy of your calling. Balance the scales in the way you live and what you say you believe. It's a call to abandon hypocrisy. It's a call to say, let what you say you believe show up in how you live. And that word worthy, balance the scales. Think about it for several weeks. Like if you, you, you've got these scales that are, are balancing, it's teeter-tottering back and forth. And for weeks, the Apostle Paul's been loading up this side of the scale and he's just loaded it down with all of those great words of doctrine and election and adoption and sealed by the work of the Holy Spirit and by grace through faith. And he speaks of the cross and he just loads that side up and he gets to chapter 4 and he says, now balance the scales. Let your everyday practice more and more balance with your eternal position. And so he begins in chapter 4 to like place weights on the scale that bring that into balance for us to grab a hold of those things and live it out in our everyday life. How do we balance the scales? Well, he gives five words that describe how to balance that scale, scale to bring our, our behavior and our belief into equal position. But remember the context before we get there. Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, believers around Ephesus, they're living in a world that's mixed racially. They're living in a world that's mixed religiously. They're living in a world that's mixed politically. They're living in a world that's mixed socially and economically. And in every one of those areas, it creates hostility. It, it creates division and barriers. And, and in, uh, it's, it's, it's not hard to make a leap right into our day-to-day -day of living in a world mixed economically, racially, socially, religiously, mixed in opinions and values. And the Apostle Paul writes into that kind of environment, particularly in the area of Jewish and Gentile relationships. Old Testament, God's chosen people, the law, festivals, feasts, uh, times of great history of God's deliverance and faithfulness and them being in bondage and slavery and being set free and, and God continuing to work with them to show his patience with them and love and faithfulness and them running away and rebelling, coming back, and all of that relationship. You come into the New Testament day that Paul's writing into, and you have the temple for worship, and the Gentiles are outside of that temple. They're, they're separated, and, and now they're living in the same communities, and Jesus is introduced into the middle of them, and by grace through faith they believe in him. But how does that affect all of this earthly division that's been a part of their life? And maybe they say to themselves, hey, I can get this right with God. I can have peace with God. But what does that mean with the people I'm having a hard time getting along with that's gathering with me in this church? And that's the context that he's writing in. And the Apostle Paul makes the appeal in these last three chapters of Ephesians to pursue unity. 
And we'll see next week that he talks about all the one things that we have in common. They're one spirit, one faith, one baptism. We'll talk about those things that we unite in and around. But here he's, he's, he's putting weight in the balance to show what our conduct looks like to balance our call. And the way he begins to press toward this call to unity is to remind them of what they have in common. It's good for us to remember what we have in common that we sometimes find ourselves at odds with. And, and the Apostle Paul says, look, Jew, Gentile, who were you? He taught us in Ephesians, Jew or Gentile, you were dead in your sins. You have that in common. We have that in common with anybody that we have division with or we're at odds with or we have a hard time getting along with. What we do have in common is this, is that we were all once before Jesus dead in our sins. Second thing we have in common, not who we were, but because of Jesus, who we are. We go from being dead in our sins to being alive in Christ. And the Apostle Paul says, you were dead in your sins. You are now alive in Christ. And get this, here's something else you have in common. What it cost both of you to get from who you were to who you are is also the same. Both sinners, both brought to life by faith in Christ. And what did it cost? The cross. The cross, that same... That, that, that death of Jesus Christ, that one lamb, that payment for sin was the price of your sin. Regardless of how much you think you are different from somebody else, sin, dead, Jesus, alive, the cost, the cross. And he says, you have that in common. And now, here's another thing you have in common, how you live. And the conduct of the Jew and the conduct of the Gentile. And you and I, we can list whatever categories we want. If we know Jesus, the common conduct is laid out for us in Scripture. And he's showing us that Christianity is really meant to be Christa-unity. And that there is something that we have in common. The word ekklesia is the word we... That, 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 that's the Greek word for church. And so when we say I'm a part of a church, we're, so we're part of the ecclesia. We're, that word, Greek word means the called out ones. And as a church, we're the called out ones. And the Apostle Paul says, as those who are called out by God for salvation, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Balance the scales. And our real tension is, is that we can be really quick to celebrate our position while at the same time we separate it from our practice and he's driving hard at what it looks like to live for Jesus you ever pray that prayer you ever say Lord help me today live for you Lord help me today to show others you you know what we're praying you know what the answer to that is the answer to that is showing others Jesus, living for Jesus, is described right here in these five words of what balances the scales. Number one, humility. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility. Now, 
we may be in a room here as believers and we hear the word humility and we, we kind of ooh and ah and, and almost we hear it as a cherished word for the culture in that day for the Apostle Paul to start with the word humility would create a little bit of a stink in their mind it, it was not a positive word it was a negative word that was not a trait that you raised your kids to have you, you, it was a culture that raised people to be bold to think of themselves to, you got to put yourself out there you got to keep yourself in mind you got to think about self and the apostle Paul says as a new creation as one who's been born again as a citizen of heaven here's how you pursue unity you walk in humility that's letting your belief and your behavior come more in line humility it has to do with perspective it has to do with how I see you in relationship to me it has to do with how do I think about you in relationship to what I think about myself it's perspective and the and the the most uh, amazing picture of humility is just a couple of pages over in Philippians 2 where we see this pattern of Jesus and model of Jesus himself who demonstrated humility to make salvation possible for you and all of the power that he had all the authority that he had all the ruling and reigning that he had his ability he le he, he leaves heaven and he, he comes to earth and he takes on flesh. The Bible says he emptied himself. Look at verse 4. Let each of you look, um, Philippians 2 verse 4 says, Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who through, who, verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the Apostle Paul says, just like Jesus, who's living in you, to walk in Christ means that you also will practice humility in relating to others. And he's showing us that this vertical relationship we get right with God, the, the first area that it shows up in, in life is that it affects our horizontal relationships with others. To be reconciled with God affects our relationship with others. It begins with humility. It's a C.S. Lewis says it's not just thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. It's living a life where we're saying, hey, not what about me. We're saying, what are they saying? What do they need? Where are they coming from? How can I serve them? It's putting others first. It's considering others over self. It's a matter of perspective. Second word, gentleness. If you learned another translation of these verses, maybe you grew up quoting these verses by using the word meekness. Uh, walk in a manner worthy of your calling, which you've been called with all humility, maybe you would say, and meekness. Gentleness, same word. Uh, someone has said uh, uh, meekness is weakness, but it's not. 
meekness or gentleness is not the absence of power or the absence of strength or the absence of authority. Gentleness or meekness is power and authority and strength under control. It, it has to do with kindness. It has to do with tone. It has to do with controlled strength. And when Jesus came and identified himself in Matthew 11 as being gentle, he was not uh, talking about something where he was saying, I'm weak or I have no strength. He was talking about the way that he relates, inviting people to come to him. It's the opposite of being bullied, the opposite of being brutish. Gentleness. Meekness. Have you ever been bullied? Have you ever bullied? It's, it's the opposite of that. Tenth grader in high school, I was bullied for many days on end. New kid in school, the guy was bigger than me, stronger than me, more popular than me. When he caught me at times by myself, uh, he was not gentle. You can be big and strong and popular, powerful, and still be gentle. We have a black lab. The thing that amazes me most about our black lab is how big he is. He's just a bear. And he's so strong. And I'm trying to figure out a way to harness him. Uh, to, I, I've just got this romantic view of my pretty white truck with this black lab and red collar just riding along with me. I can't even figure out how to get him in there. He's just, he's, he, he's just, he's just stout. And, but yet our kids, they get around him. They can pull his ears. They can pull his legs. They can reach in his mouth and get things out of it. They pet him. They tackle him. They wrestle with him. And, and, and he's like, and here's what we say. That big old black lab is just a gentle lab. Now, he could rip their arm off, but he's gentle with them. And that's the characteristic, that's the trait God's speaking of here, that for in our relationships with other people is humility. It has, it has to do with perspective, gentleness. It has to do with how we manage power. The third word is patience. And he says, all humility and gentleness with patience. Patience. The word that we, old-timey definition, long-suffering. That means that we're willing to go a long time. Taking hard stuff. It's the opposite of haste and shortness and sharpness. And, and abruptness. It's the way we deal with relationships and it has to do with pace. Like humility has to do with perspective and gentleness has to do with power that's controlled. Patience has to do with pace. It, it has to do with how pushy we are and how expectant we are and how demanding we are. And, and the Apostle Paul describes for us that for us to live in Christ and walk with Christ is that we're going to demonstrate a characteristic of long suffering, of a pace that's willing to slow a little bit, to give people time. 
I would describe it in a, in a way of, it, it has to, it's the picture of, of, of rounding the edges in our relationships. By that I mean that, that, that around, we take the edge off. We, we slow the pace a little bit. It's not painful to be around you. Patience. We take things for a, over time. And then the fourth is forbearance. He says, bearing with one another in love. How? In love. What is love's not a feeling. We don't bear with one another because we have this ooey-gooey feeling about them. We bear with one another because we choose to love. 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, and it goes on. It keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't boast. It always lasts. In that picture of what love is, we're forbearing. We, we bear with one another. Just that old-fashioned phrase of, here it is, this is very profound. We just put up with a lot of stuff. That's really how profound it is. To, to live out our faith in Jesus Christ in relationships with people in this church and in an environment in this church, for there to be unity, we have to put up with some stuff. You put up with some things from me, I put up with some things from you. Now listen, if you're, if you're hearing me say that we are to compromise on sin or scripture, you're hearing the wrong thing. I'm talking about the way we relate and operate with one another and get along with each other, the way we deal with division and divides and, and things that cause hostility between us. Humility, it's perspective, gentleness, it's controlling power, patience, it has to do with pace, forbearance has to do with putting up with things. Let's look at me this look this way. Can we, let's be really let's be real right now. All right? Let's not just check a box here. You know what's so hard about a sermon like this? Is that I know all week I gotta preach it on Sunday. And I gotta stand in front of my wife and my kids and talk about patience and forbearance and humility. And gentleness. And yesterday at the house, I'm just I'm sitting at the counter and I'm thinking, I got to preach this tomorrow. I got to preach this tomorrow. And um, and I was failing at some of these. It, it makes me think about Monday. I mean, sermons like this. I was like, what's coming on Monday? It's going to be a test out there. Apostle Paul goes on, he gives us a fifth thing, eagerness for unity. That, that is, has to do with pursuit. What are we willing to go after? He says, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. The bond of peace. Remember, Jews and Gentiles, what could possibly be their bond? Such a different history, such a different background, different taste. I mean, there were some things they could eat that that they thought for them to eat was sinful. I mean, what all of this, how, how do we get along? And he says, here's the bond that you have. The bond you have is peace. What kind of peace? Peace with the Creator, peace with the Heavenly Father. How did that happen? You were separated from God by sin. There was the death of the Lamb of God, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. He paid for our sin. 
making it possible for us to be reconciled to God, making it possible for us to be at peace with God. And he says, now Jew and Gentile, here's your common bond. It's the peace that you have through Jesus in the cross. That's your common bond. And here's what you got to be in your life. You got to walk it out where you're pursuing unity in the spirit for the and, and the bond of peace. It's, it's the pursuit that we go after. And we, we, we live today in a world where there's lots of division. There's lots of hostility. And the Apostle Paul speaking as relevant as it was the day he wrote this into our hearts today to say, look, the way as a church you're going to go after what God wants you to go after is to live a life of humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and be eager for unity. And I look back over that list, and, and I, there was a verse that God brought to my attention in 1992 into 1993. I left seminary, finished seminary, had my degree. I was going to pastor. I go to Cleveland to pastor, and man, I knew a lot. I was a seminary grad, and I was called to be their pastor. And I showed up with lots of ideas and lots of things that I knew I was going to do in the place where I served. And I remember we were eating dinner with the chairman of deacons before they voted on us, and Carla would remember this meal, and Wiley Wooten took us to dinner, and we're eating dinner, and Wiley's an insulator by trade, and he's just gruff, and, and, and he, he's like, ah, what's wrong, Wiley? Ah, what's wrong? I, I can't believe I'm about to call a 26-year-old to be my pastor. And I, I remember just looking at him saying, me either. And I would go to those first deacons meetings. They hadn't had a kid born there when we got there in like five years. I mean, there was no babies there. We were, we were the babies. And I go to that deacons meeting, and these old men in there, and I got my ideas. I got my thoughts. I got my plans. I got the way we're going to do it. Here we go, men. Line up behind me. Here we go. And I finished that meeting, and I'm like, that didn't go very well. Another meeting, I didn't go very well. First year, I didn't go Man, what's going on? God says, come over here to Proverbs 16, 32. Proverbs 16, 32 says, better is a patient man than a warrior. And there's such a push on us in our culture. And you get out there and you make it happen. You get out there and get it done. You get out there and check it off the list. You get out there and conquer it all. Go be the warrior. And God says, hey, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance eager to maintain unity better is a patient man than a warrior I, want to have, I have some concluding thoughts here just want to lay before us and I wrestle this passage and look over it there's a strong possibility today that we are more eager to maintain our position than we are to maintain peace.
We walk too much like the world in our relationships. We've let the tone of our culture, we've let the tone of our culture bleed over into our relationships in the church. And we think that the way that the world maybe relates to us is the way that we relate to one another. God calls us here in this glaring way to say, look, let your belief affect your behavior. And you walk different than the world. Pastor, you don't know the real world. It's not safe out there to live a life of humility. God didn't call us to be safe. He called us to be obedient. To let our walk match our faith. Too many times we're willing to celebrate our position in Christ and separate it from our practice with others. So some questions for me, for you. In what relationships are you more prideful than humble? In what relationships do you relate more according to how the situation impacts you than them? In what relationships are you more harsh than gentle? Would your relationships be characterized as kind? Would your spouse say about you? Would your children say about you? They're gentle. They're kind. In what relationships are you more pushy than patient? In what relationships are you more intolerant than forbearing? It just really comes down to this. Are you hard to get along with? The law keepers were the loudest critics in Jesus' day. But the crowd clamored to get close to Jesus. They sensed something different about him. It's the way God related to us. Praise his name. Amen. God related to us with a picture, with a pattern, in power. With humility, gentleness, thank the Lord he's patient with us and forbearing. Thank the Lord that he didn't leave us separated from him forever to spend eternity in hell, but he made a way for us to have the bond of peace. Do you walk different? Do the world, does the world see you walking different? I read this week an article about a guy who was taken to church most of his life by his grandmother. And he asked his grandmother, he said, Grandmother, every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night you took me to church. Why did you just always take me to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night? And his grandmother was, grandmother's reply to him was this, because I wanted you to become a Christian. And he said, then it occurred to me that we missed one Wednesday night every month. And I said, Grandmother, why did we miss one Wednesday night every month? And she said, that was business meeting and I wanted you to become a Christian. <laughs> Friends, let's not be like the world. 
Francis Schaeffer, a great theologian in the 20th century, said that our, our last apologetic is our love for one another. It would be tragic for us if we had to apologize to people because of our faith and the way we treat them and the way we treat one another instead of the way we treat one another being the very thing that defends our faith. A couple of weekends ago, took a couple of my boys fishing in South Georgia and got out in the country and we fished and we grilled and we shot guns and we skipped rocks and shot uh, road ATVs and just had country time. The boys took their shirts off and I don't think they put them on for three days. I mean, it was just a good time. Carla said, you have fun? Did you enjoy? I said, I did. What did you enjoy? And my immediate response that just came to my mind without thinking was, I loved watching them enjoy each other. I love watching them just enjoy each other. Don't you imagine that in the Father's heart that there's something that hurts him deeply when his children don't enjoy one another, don't exercise humility and patience and gentleness and forbearance, Go after peace. And don't you know there's something glorious that happens in his heart when he looks on us and he sees us maintaining the spirit of unity in the bond of peace. Hey, hey, look at him, Jesus. Look at him, Jesus, look at him. Let's walk worthy. where we've been called. Lord, we love you. We exalt you. We need you. Thank you for giving to us the picture, the pattern, demonstrating the power of walking in a manner worthy of our calling. Please help us. Let us walk different. Let our walk be a great witness to who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.